Welcome to Psychedelic Science for the People. My name is Emily Feda, and I will be your guide as we attempt to better understand psychedelic medicine through conversations with scientists and researchers. If you're a longtime listener of Cannabis Science Today, I'm so glad you're here, and I hope you stick around as the show and our branding continue to evolve. When I started this podcast back in 2019, our goal was to bring scientific research on cannabis to the people who need it most, patients, consumers, and industry professionals. Our goals haven't changed, but as you probably know, we're seeing a global renaissance in psychedelic research, as well as a decriminalization movement in the U.S. So it's never been more important to provide education on medicines like psilocybin, ayahuasca, LSD, MDMA, and ketamine. If you're here for the cannabis content, stay tuned. Our obsession with terpenes isn't going anywhere, and we're still going to be talking about cannabis. Thank you for being here. I hope you enjoy this upcoming season, and my goal is that these conversations provide a holistic understanding of psychedelic medicine so we can encourage safe and conscious use. This podcast is part of the outreach and education mission of the Agricultural Genomics Foundation, a nonprofit that aims to bring scientific research and education to the public. The Agricultural Genomics Foundation has an undergraduate course taught at the University of Colorado Boulder on modern cannabis science. All interested learners can enroll through continuing education. Your tax-exempt donations can help us continue making courses and providing scientific education. If you'd like to make a donation, please visit agriculturalgenomics.org. Today we are featuring Dr. Ben Malcolm, also known as the Spirit Pharmacist. Dr. Malcolm was trained as a clinical psychiatric pharmacist, and he envisions a society in which access to psychedelic drugs is available for purposes of psycho-spiritual well-being, personal development, ceremonial sacraments, and treatment of mental illness. In this episode, we talk about the drug-drug interactions between common psychiatric medications, such as SSRIs, and psychedelics like MDMA and psilocybin. He talks about serotonin sickness, risks associated with isolated DMT and hearing loss, and he shares some best practices for using psychedelics safely and consciously. Dr. Malcolm really lives up to his name as the spirit pharmacist, and he is a rare individual who can talk about exactly what is happening to our brain chemistry when we take psychedelics, while simultaneously honoring the profound spiritual shifts that these medicines can give us. So first of all, Ben, thank you so much for for joining us today on this episode. It's a pleasure to be here. And you are the spirit pharmacist. So those are two words we don't hear combined too often, especially in the Western world. So let's start there. What is spirit pharmacy and what does that mean to you? Yeah, so well, spirit pharmacist is my psychopharmacology and, and um, education kind of business. And I, I focus on psychiatric medications and, and psychedelics and kind of how they, they interface with each other. And I kind of really conceived of this name spirit pharmacist because I wanted to inherently recognize that some drugs have spiritual properties or can evoke experiences that persons identify as being highly spiritual or even more like a bona fide, like religious type of uh, experience. And so I was thinking kind of, well, 
blood pressure or diabetes. It's like, obviously drugs have physiological effects. They can reduce blood pressure or blood sugars and things like that. And if you're in psychiatry, then drugs can have like psychotropic or like emotional types of effects, you know, thinking about lifting mood and things like that, or maybe cognitive types of effects, more like ADHD or anti-dementia types of medications. But there's really just no inherent recognition that a drug could have a spiritual kind of quality or property. So spirit pharmacist, okay, like recognizes that, that there really is this kind of niche of uh, substances or drugs and psychedelics that tend to evoke spiritual types of uh, experiences. But then also I'm a psychiatric pharmacist, which means I'm like a mental health professional. So it's sort of a recognition that I don't really know what makes each person tick or what's going to make each person happy. Um, and I think that this sort of, I don't know, society thinks that the doctor knows like which of these things or agents or tools are going to make them happy or make them well. And they end up feeling like guinea pigs as a result, because it's kind of like, well, try this, try this, try this. And it's like, well, don't, don't you know which one, right? Or it's, I'm basically admitting that, no, I don't know what makes your spirit or soul happy. That's actually a quest for you to find out. And I can be a sounding board, a reflection tool, an education uh, expert in that kind of like area and help you kind of maybe avoid some booby traps and, and point you in a direction that I personally would try first if I was them. But it's not, uh, it's mostly about trying to empower people to make decisions for their own spirit in the world of mental health, which I think traditionally is something where it's like, you know, doctor knows best, culture knows best. And I don't think that that's really true for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And the first thing that drew me to your work was the systematic literature review to understand more about the drug interactions between psychiatric medications, you know, the more traditional um, SSRIs and uh, psychedelics. So I think as we kind of see in the United States, especially this MDMA assisted therapy and psilocybin assisted therapy becoming more used or, or becoming more um, part of the mental health world, this is so important and so critical to understand. So could you tell me more about that research and what, what you learned? What do you think is most important for people to know when it comes to these drug and drug interactions? Yeah. So, I mean, MDMA and psilocybin, like just to back up a, a little bit, right, mm -hmm. are, are now being researched as psychedelic assisted therapies, but they're also regulated as Schedule One or illicit substances federally still. And the FDA has given both of these breakthrough designations. And this essentially means that the FDA recognizes that there's a potential superiority of these treatment modalities for conditions that are sort of undertreated, or we don't really have good options for them. So MDMA-assisted therapy for treatment refractory PTSD, and I'll say that a lot of PTSD is not very well treated at baseline. It seems that the medications that we have available do less for PTSD than they do for other kinds of psychiatric conditions like major depression or, or generalized uh, anxiety. Uh, and then in major depression too, I mean, SSRIs get a response 60% yeah, of the time, 70% maybe, depending on which kind of data source you're looking at. 
which really means that 30 or 40% of the time, the person is left with a lot of the symptoms that they were uh, struggling with. So there's a big treatment need out there in psychiatry and and mental health at, at baseline. And we don't have too many options currently, or we have lots of different options, but they tend to be really similar types of medications. And the kind of front runners are SSRIs or SNRIs. These are selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. And these SSRI or SNRI medications are indicated as kind of first-line treatments in psychiatry guidelines or prescribing algorithms for lots of different conditions, major depression, generalized anxiety, PTSD, obsessive compulsive disorder, other types of anxiety, social anxiety, panic disorders, and some others that, you know, (laughs) are escaping the top of my head right now. And it seems that psychedelics are being studied for those exact same sort of swath of, of indications. So it kind of is getting set up that, well, MDMA and psilocybin could be breakthrough therapies for a lot of the illnesses where SSRI or SNRI medications are treated or are recommended, I guess, as first-line types of, of treatments. Anecdotally, and now experimentally, it seems that the SSRIs or SNRIs can potentially be counterproductive to the effects of MDMA or or psilocybin. Uh, So that's essentially what we're kind of trying to do in a systematic review is go through, you know, what actually has been done? Like, what actually can we say about these drug interactions? And most of the drugs that have been studied in combination with MDMA or psilocybin are serotonergic drugs. And it makes sense that that's why they, I mean, they're two drugs that work on serotonin synapses. So yeah, you would suspect that there could be some kind of clinically significant drug interaction there. And if you were trying to elucidate the mechanism of a psychedelic or understand more about effects of drugs in combination, that's what you would sort of look at. So really what we found is that we need a lot more research in this area. There's very few experiments with psilocybin and psychiatric medications. There's a few more with MDMA, but a lot of these studies, they're using healthy volunteers, they're pre-treating them with a psychiatric medication for a day or two, maybe up to a week or two. But these kinds of persons that don't have a psychiatric illness and then aren't taking the medications on a long-term basis could inherently be a bit different than the kind of long-term antidepressant user with major depression or or, or PTSD. Um, so basically, they are uh, kind of poised to be competitors in the marketplace, SSRIs or SNRIs and MDMA or psilocybin. And these competitors don't seem like they play very well together. It seems like the antidepressants tend to reduce the effects or diminish the responses to the psychedelic. And there's some data supporting that that in turn diminishes the therapeutic benefit a person gains. So Mm -hmm. we're in a real kind of ethical conundrum, I think if you're a, if you're a psychiatrist, if you're someone that prescribes these antidepressants and you're prescribing them for things like PTSD, where you know the drugs may not work too well at baseline, and then you know now if you're prescribing that drug that you could be shooting a person in the foot to, to use MDMA or psilocybin as a therapeutic intervention down the road, it kind of seems like, wow, like 
should SSRIs or SNRIs be first line if they ruin the chances at using a breakthrough refractory treatment? Um, but it's a gray area. <laughs> There's a lot more information we need to, to understand it. But at the moment, it's really looking like they're competitors that probably don't play very well together. Absolutely. And do you know if any in the MAPS trials or any any of the trials that are currently out, are the people who are the patients who are participating within the trial, are they, are any of them on SSRIs or medications, or is it a prerequisite that you're not on any psychiatric medication in order to participate? Yeah. So so all the studies that MAPS has done with MDMA, they've required people to taper and discontinue their antidepressant and wash them out mm -hmm. for at least two weeks. And uh, it's sort of unclear how many persons in their trial were on antidepressants at baseline because part of their definition of being treatment refractory is you don't get adequate responses to antidepressants. So some persons aren't on antidepressants because they've tried them and they just don't work for them, whereas other persons were on them, not getting the result they wanted and actually had to taper off. So with MDMA, um, none of the clinical trials, at least with like, like PTSD populations, have involved staying on the antidepressants. And the majority of psilocybin trials or research have been done that way as well. Um, that's sort of changing a little bit with psilocybin. There was one randomized double-blinded study that came out earlier this year looking at the effects of an SSRI, escitalopram, or Lexapro in combination with psilocybin. They did use healthy volunteers. They treated people with the escitalopram or Lexapro for two weeks at a time. And their results were that it didn't seem to diminish many of the positive aspects of the psilocybin experience, but it did seem to modulate some of the more negative aspects. And I think the big issue or flaw with that trial is that when you start an antidepressant like an SSRI or SNRI, the standard counseling is that you're going to have to take this drug consistently for at least two weeks to begin to get a therapeutic effect and probably more like four, six, maybe even eight weeks to get to a full therapeutic effect. So the big sort of problem with that piece of data is that they only gave them the Lexapro for two weeks. So whatever neuroadaptive responses that SSRIs cause over time that tend to make a person feel better were incomplete or maybe had not even occurred at, at two weeks, which kind of makes you scratch your head and wonder, okay, is that a valid piece of information? Um, there's a, a COMPASS phase 2b study with psilocybin where they actually kept some people on an antidepressant. And I personally haven't seen the results of that study published yet, but the kind of press releases or I guess like what I've heard about it is that they did still get effects of psilocybin even while taking their, their antidepressant. And I'll be uh, really interested to see that data, the doses they used, and exactly how they determined the experience was the same and, and things like that. John Hopkins, you know, it's kind of a lower level, lower level methodology-wise, but Johns Hopkins just released a big survey that they did about people that had combined psilocybin with antidepressants, as well as people that had tried psilocybin after discontinuing their antidepressant. And they seem to find that about 50% of the time, a person taking an antidepressant reported a diminished effect of psilocybin or a diminished intensity compared to what they expected it would be like. Mm -hmm. And it seemed that 
about half the time, if that person attempted a higher dose, they could sort of overcome that medication resistance and get to sort of what they expected to be a full effect of, of psilocybin. So with psilocybin and antidepressants, it may not necessarily be a deal breaker. It may be, well, the person just needs an empirically higher dose, or perhaps they need to try a regular dose and then titrate up to a higher dose uh, on a different day, attempted at a different time with a higher dose. And maybe that would work out well for them. Mm -hmm. The persons that tapered and stopped psilocybin or stopped their antidepressant to use psilocybin, they noticed that for some period of time after stopping, they also felt the effects were diminished and that the full intensity of experience didn't really recover until about three to six months after stopping their, their antidepressant. So it really does seem to sort of suggest that the, the drug interaction between antidepressants and psilocybin is probably a result of some of the more longer term neuroadaptive effects of the antidepressant rather than sort of a really direct competitive drug interaction. Because if it was a direct competitive drug interaction, then you would think as soon as the antidepressant has left the body, which should be 10 days about for most antidepressants, then you would get full effects restored. But since you're seeing this sort of delay to getting the full effects back over a period of months, it really sort of corresponds with a time frame of probably reversing some of the neuroadaptive effects that occurred while they were taking the antidepressant. Right. So, I, I think that's yeah, please I think interrupt that's so, me now. <laughs> right. I think that's so important to to distinguish because it sounds like there's I mean, there's multiple questions here, but two that are coming up for me is is it safe or is it effective to use MDMA or psilocybin while you're still on your antidepressants? Is this tapering? Right, 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 is this right, yeah, tapering? So, especially if people are, you know, suffering from extreme depression where it's just not safe for them to right. they're not in a position to taper off their medication. So that's one really important question. Mm -hmm. But then the second question too is, and we know that a lot of people, uh, I think originally, as I understand, SSRIs were meant to be this way of, uh, you know, a short-term treatment for depression. And then eventually you would taper off of them. But of course, so many people, and I think the way that they're used in the Western, the Western world is people go on them forever. And that will certainly most likely, as you're explaining, cause long-term changes in the brain. So, yeah. So, so I'm wondering kind of, um, in terms of like those, those two groups of people. Yeah. What, yeah. I don't know if you have anything more to say kind of as we yeah, 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 into yeah. Two, two separate, yeah, so, two separate categories. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll say that, um, if you're using standard therapeutic doses of your antidepressant and using standard therapeutic doses of MDMA or psilocybin, you can combine them and there's no data suggesting that it's dangerous. The information that Hopkins produced really suggested that psilocybin antidepressants is safe. Everything that I've come across also suggests that if you combine an antidepressant with psilocybin or MDMA, it usually just kind of duds and fizzles rather than there's adverse effects or serotonin toxicity or serotonin syndrome, that kind of thing. So if you're just talking about standard therapeutic doses of pure substances in combination, then no, I don't think that's dangerous. I do think it's safe, but would you really get much in the way of the effect that you're after, right? So the, so the contraindication is more leaning towards lack of efficacy than it is a safety concern for both MDMA or psilocybin. 
And if but I, I could... think the difference, right, is that mm. psilocybin is the kind of substance that doesn't have a lethally defined dose in humans. Right. MDMA is the kind of substance where if you take a threefold overdose, you could be in real physiologic hot water. So when it comes to like medication resistance with an antidepressant, MDMA, not a great candidate to try doubling the dose to see if you can overcome medication resistance. Psilocybin, wonderful candidate to double the dose to see if you can come overcome that. So, so whether you want to overcome the resistance or attempt doing that probably has to do with the toxicity profile of the psychedelic you're ingesting and psilocybin and LSD have great, you know, physical toxicity profiles. They're very physically safe, even in large doses. So it might be reasonable for the person to try to push the dose and overcome the resistance where I really wouldn't recommend it for other psychedelics like the phenethylamine sort of types, the MDMA, the 2CB types of, of compounds. It seems the data is a little stronger that there could really be a direct drug interaction there. And they're just drugs that are physiologically more adverse when you push the dose high. Mm-hmm. And is I don't want to be reductive because I know so many things yeah. are happening in the brain when this happens. But when you are taking as I understand with psychedelics, a lot of them attach to that, uh, the serotonin, the 2A receptor. Yes. And the SSRIs do that as well. So so is it p- part of this is kind of they're fighting for the same receptor? Yeah. Well, well, the SSRIs don't bind serotonin receptors. They bind the okay. serotonin reuptake pump, right? Oh, so okay, it's a okay. selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. Mm-hmm. So they're actually, so, so that's what I'm saying. Like SSRIs and psilocybin, they work on two distinct targets in the serotonin nervous Got system. It. So, so it's not a direct competitive drug drug interaction, right? Uh, it's more like you block the serotonin reuptake pump with an antidepressant. There's more serotonin in the synapse as a response. And then the body will downregulate the amount of serotonin receptors that you have in response. Cause mm-hmm. basically they're like the serotonin signal got turned up. So the number of receivers we need for that signal can be decreased. And it's probably that decrease in the density of serotonin 2A receptors that that could plausibly result in a diminished sort of uh, effect. Um, That's with psilocybin, right? MDMA has a more complex mechanism of action because it not only binds serotonin receptors like psilocybin, but it also releases serotonin from Mm -hmm. the presynaptic nerve SERP terminal. And it does this release from the presynaptic nerve terminal by reversing neurotransmitter flow, meaning that MDMA needs the serotonin reuptake pump to be free or unoccupied to have its mechanism because it releases serotonin through the reuptake pump. So basically SSRIs probably do directly block the effects of MDMA as well as potentially blocking it through these kind of longer term neuroadaptive effects. Where mm-hmm. psilocybin, there's no direct drug-drug interaction at all, at least that we know about, and it seems much more um, kind of long-term, higher doses, neuroadaptive effects leading to the blunted responses. Mm-hmm. Yes, and you mentioned something earlier that I wanted to circle back to about the ethical quandary of psychiatrists who are prescribing SSRIs as the first line of treatment because that's yeah. how they've, you know, that's how they've been trained. So, and especially, I'm wondering if the research is is indicating that that the you know these medications can cause long term change that makes people treatment resistant to to psychedelics. What what do you think about this? I know it's a big question, but but how? What are the best ways to kind of 
um, yeah, what are kind of the best ways to approach this, given that the Western model of psychiatry has been so focused on these this certain type of medication for so long? Yeah. Well, I guess like, first of all, it's like, I mean, I don't blame any doctor that didn't know about these kinds of like drug interactions. And I mean, to, to an extent, like we still don't know about them, like they're being elucidated right now. So I would say that it's more like a potential ethical kind of conundrum that's kind of like coming down the pike rather than the doctors that have been prescribing have inherently been doing it unethically because they've known about these interactions for a long period of time. Right. Of course. So, of course. so, so there's like that piece of it, but yeah, I think it's an education piece, right? I think it's kind of like, right. If someone, let's say somebody comes to you and I was assaulted a few months ago, I've had nightmares. Like it seems like a new diagnosis of PTSD and you're going to talk about treatment options with a person MDMA is not quite approved yet. The FDA does have an expanded access program approved, but let's say it's the end of 2023. It's a year from now, and the FDA is actually rubber stamped MDMA assisted therapy for, for PTSD. And it's known that those antidepressants diminish the effects of MDMA and the therapeutic responses that persons get. Mm-hmm. Now it seems like it's kind of my duty because I'm not expecting the American Psychiatric Association to change their prescribing guideline upon the release of MDMA. I'm expecting them to observe what happens for five years and then update their practice guideline around it. So there's going to be this period of time here where there isn't very clear guidance on how the situation should be handled, but persons are going to need to make decisions when they're talking to, to patients or, or clients about it. So if it were me, I would probably have a spiel that, you know, well, these are the standard types of medications they're taken on a daily basis. And, you know, this is the sort of efficacy rates that they have for, for PTSD and their side effect profile. And, you know, this is sort of the chance of this working. And if it doesn't work, these would be the other options. But I have to let you know that this first line therapy could actually reduce the potential of being a candidate for the other option, or it could require you to go through a taper and withdrawal process and kind of wash it out in order to get it to work well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that it's like persons just need to be aware that if I start this antidepressant, then it could interfere with the potential of using an effective modality down the road if the antidepressant doesn't help me the way that I'd like. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think it's, and I, so it's a big it's, education piece, you know, yeah. to begin with. And then let's say five years from now we have more data or information about it. Because that's what that's what the, the part that breaks my brain about the the sort of like algorithm, right? It's like I get that MDMA is brand new. It's not even like therapeutically approved. So it's like how psychiatry is just going to put it at the very like front of the line as far as like everyone should do this. You know, it's an expensive, it's incredibly resource intensive invention. You know, it's you know prescribing a pill is pennies on the dollar compared to like the resource intensiveness and cost of like MDMA. Uh, assisted assisted therapy, right? So from like an economic perspective, uh, reading the numbers perspective, like that kind of thing, you know, I would expect that those antidepressants are going to be sort of at the front of the line for a little while. But kind of what breaks my brain around it is like, well, I mean, to use an antidepressant, you've got to take a pill on a daily basis consistently for like at least a month. And then usually you're going to be titrated up a notch as far as dose, and then kind of have to go through another couple of months. And by that time, you've been taking something for two or three months, 
there's some sort of like physical dependence. So even if it didn't work for you, stopping it could be potentially difficult. Whereas something like a psychedelic, it's used intermittently. And when it produces a response, it produces a response rapidly. It doesn't take months or weeks. So why not start with a rapid thing that could produce a robust result almost immediately? And if it doesn't work, then you have the long, slow moving, consistently taken type of drug. But why would we be using the long, consistently type and take of drug first when it's going to take a number of months to figure out if that works for the person? And then if it doesn't work for the person, they limited their ability to try other options. Mm-hmm. You get this. So no, I, I think, think that a- there's something to be said about the intermittent use and the sort of robust and rapid nature of psychedelic results that makes me want to push them to sort of like first line therapies. But for all the reasons that I've just kind of talked about, that's a little bit cart ahead of the horse at this stage. Mm -hmm. Right. And I do think it's just a matter of education because of course, psychedelics are still very, very like um, scary to some people. They're, they're of a different world. And, you know, I think with prohibition for so long and a lot of the misinformation out there people people are are afraid so i think the education is such a huge and critical component of this yeah um so i'd love to switch gears a little bit and i, I want to yeah. hear your thoughts on the supplements the serotonin supplement 5htp and and this is I, I this is kind of more of a party question or a harm reduction question i guess but uh, yeah. i think there's so much misinformation on the internet about this supplement um, and I know I've heard a lot of stories of people who take MDMA recreationally and then use 5-HTP t- the next day to kind of, um, you know, I guess, counteract the serotonin yeah. drop. Um, and I've also heard stories of people who are at a festival or something and they are taking ecstasy multiple days in a row and they're using the supplement um, in between. And, and you know, there, there is a risk of serotonin sickness from, from that. So I'm wondering, yeah, what, what do you know about, what do you know about the supplement? What is the research on it? And, and what is, you know, the best harm reduction yeah. advice and practices for um, combining these two things? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll say, I don't know if 5-HTP works for like MDMA recovery, right? Okay. I've been really hoping that maps like nests a case control like a like a like a study because it would be so easy you're already Mm -hmm. randomizing people to mdma or placebo just re-randomize the mdma group to five days of 5-htp versus placebo afterwards and you've got like an incredible piece of data would just like definitively answer this question for everyone right and so The whole idea or premise is that MDMA releases neurotransmitters and it primarily releases serotonin, also norepinephrine and dopamine. So the idea is that, well, MDMA has this kind of lull or period of maybe low mood or difficulty concentrating or maybe kind of irritable anxiety for, I don't know, some period of time, maybe two to seven days afterwards. And the the, the reason that this period of occurs is because you've depleted your serotonin. Like that's kind of the the idea. And uh, 5-HTP or L-tryptophan are essentially amino acid precursors for the neurotransmitter serotonin. So the idea is that if you give yourself more serotonin neurotransmitter building block, like 5-HTP or L-tryptophan, then your body will synthesize uh, serotonin faster. You'll recover faster. That's the idea. Um, Neurotransmitter synthesis is pretty 
tightly regulated and you would have to essentially run into a place where you're deficient in precursor uh, for that to work, right? And I think that's a big question because most people, I think, do get enough amino acid like L-tryptophan through their diet that they're probably not too serotonin depleted afterwards or just the L-tryptophan that they obtain in their diet the next day would be plenty enough to um, allow for serotonin to, to, to be synthesized. Um, so if, if, right, the, the, the low mood and whatnot was really a direct result of depleted serotonin and you didn't have enough building block, then I would predict 5-HTP would be helpful in that kind of situation. There are some other thoughts about that period afterwards. There's, for example, some neurotoxic metabolites of MDMA that have been elucidated. So it could just be that, well, a person doesn't feel well for some period of time because they kind of got hit with a bunch of neurotoxic metabolites and it doesn't really have to do with lower neurotransmitter levels at all. And in that case, I don't think 5-HTP would be too, too useful. It does seem to me, like kind of back to the nature of your question, that the persons that are plugging this the most as being helpful are the weekend warrior music festival type, where it's like they, they want to use big doses of MDMA, like more than 200 milligrams a, a session, or they want to use MDMA fairly frequently every week, every other week, or they want to use MDMA or related substances several days in a, in a row. And yeah, I guess like the higher the dose you take, the more days in a row you take it, probably the higher chances that you actually do deplete neurotransmitter stores. So maybe 5-HTP would be, be useful there. Um, I think it's kind of unlikely that you're going to run into like a real like life-threatening form of serotonin toxicity, mixing 5-HTP with MDMA. Um, you're probably going to run into the kind of like serotonergic responses like stomach cramping, a okay. headache, like, the, like those are the kinds of like responses that I would like sort of think would occur. Whereas kind of like high fever, myoclonic seizures, life-threatening toxicity. I don't really feel that that that's going to happen from a serotonin precursor because the body's essentially just going to say, we have enough serotonin. We don't need to make more. It's like, it's very tightly regulated the amount, right? Mm -hmm. So you can load yourself with 5-HTP it's not going to result in higher and higher and higher amounts of serotonin. It's going to result in some side effects from having too much 5-HTP, like some stomach upset, and then peeing all the excess amino acid precursor out in, in urine. So it's like, I'm not so impressed with the, um, you know, real life-threatening serotonin toxicity, but I do think people would want to wait probably 24 hours after ingestion of MDMA, 18 to 24 to start 5-HTP if they were going to. And then mm -hmm. I probably wouldn't ingest 5-HTP within six to 12 hours of using uh, MDMA beforehand. Mm -hmm. uh, so I wouldn't mix them straight up, probably because it just make your stomach feel off, but not necessarily because I would expect something like life-threatening to, to occur. That's interesting. That's interesting. It does kind of remind me, and it is always so helpful to remember that our body has these mechanisms to 
to moderate this. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it kind of reminds me too in the cannabis industry. Um, you know, we start to see these concentrates that are like 98% THC. And it's like, all right, well, your body can't actually synthesize like yeah. that high level of THC yeah. at a time. It actually, to some degree, it seems rooted in like depression hypothesis myth to me. Like mm-hmm. if you're kind of thinking like for a long time, the narrative has been people get depressed because serotonin is low. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, there's no basis for that. There's no truth to that, right? Drugs that boost serotonin sometimes increase mood, but it doesn't mean that you're depressed because you have low serotonin. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like, it seems like kind of like a really similar idea that, oh, MDMA makes, makes serotonin low. So if you have serotonin precursor, then it just cancels it out and you're you're back to, back to, to normal. Um, of course. So yeah, I really wish MAPS would like nest that sort of like study in there because it seems like an, an easy and relatively cheap thing to do that, you know, could, could like help short, sure this up. Cause many people do think that that that's helpful for them. And whether it's just more like they've got a supplement lever to pull and that's psychologically beneficial or whether there really is this sort of neurochemical, um, benefit that using a few days of five HTPRL tryptophan Basically, I just tell people at baseline, you know, you're approaching this from a more therapeutic angle, right? And you're using fairly moderate doses and you're, you don't plan on staying up all night and, and kind of messing with your circadian rhythm. And you're not going to be mixing it with other neurotoxins like amphetamine or, or alcohol. Um, then you probably don't have too much to worry about as far as like the hangover or like neurotoxicity piece. Um, but if you do notice that MDMA knocks you down afterwards, and there really is a serious clinical benefit, then the next administration, try a week of 5-HTP afterwards. I just don't really feel like it's necessary to spray the broad side of the barn with supplements because you're using a normal therapeutic dose of MDMA. Um, But if you really sort of prove it to yourself that, wow, MDMA really hits me hard. And if I take, you know, some antioxidants and 5-HTP, it makes me feel better and I'm getting a great clinical benefit, fine, right? Mm -hmm. But if it's like, well, MDMA knocks me down and I'm not getting a great clinical benefit, well, maybe that's just not the substance for you, right? Yeah, I want want to come back to what you just said about, you know, it's like the traditional, the traditional medicinal or pharmacology idea is, oh, people are depressed because serotonin is low. Um, but, but of course, you know, there's so many, there's so many reasons in this world, in this modern world, why we are depressed or why we lack meaning. So I'm wondering when you counsel patients, how do you kind of, how do you, um, bring both of those elements of it? Like, sure. Maybe some people, there are definitely people who, who maybe do have a chemical imbalance in the brain. I think that's valid and very true, but then there's also people who lack meaning in their lives or maybe need more air sunshine community. So how do you think we can kind of combine these two, you know, take a more holistic approach when it comes to, to, well, I'm usually just counseling people that like, in a lot of ways, it's a bit of a false distinction. Okay. Right, like that, like that, like whether you take a drug or you do something in the in the world, you know, you're you're providing some kind of stimuli for the for the body or the brain. And I mean, drugs might be more. I don't know if they're more predictable. Actually, that that might not be true. Right, but 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 I think a lot of people kind of feel like. Let's just say it's true. I'm depressed because I have low serotonin. Doc, what's the cure? This drug to boost serotonin. Here you go. Right. 
But what if sunshine and exercise also boost serotonin? Right. It's sort of like we know that if you stare in the eyes of your golden retriever for 10 seconds, you get a release of oxytocin. Right. So the external world and the stimuli that we get from the external world can have drug like effects and change neurotransmitter levels just as much that a drug could. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not so much that, okay, you want to believe you're depressed because of a neurotransmitter imbalance? Fine. But don't believe that the only solution to balancing your neurotransmitters is a drug, because that's a pharmaceutical narrative, right? Mm-hmm. Versus like we know that, like, hey, exercise, it does increase serotonin levels. Mm-hmm. Right? And there's plenty of data showing that for mild, moderate levels of mental illness, exercise is really beneficial. Mm-hmm. So, so, so a lot of it kind of makes sense. And I think this idea of like drugs are the only thing that changes neurotransmitter levels is you know, a false bill of goods. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a great point and something to to consider. Yeah, to consider and and to educate on. So, I also wanted to talk to you about ayahuasca because I think we we did talk a, a lot about the in- drug interactions between psilocybin and MDMA and different psychiatric medications, but ayahuasca is, you know, it's a different substance completely. And I think it's important to not treat psychedelics as a monolith. And I wouldn't want anyone to come away from this interview thinking that, you know, co- combining any, um, the, there aren't toxicity risks of combining psychiatric yeah. and psychedelic, um, medications. So you did write a paper on ayahuasca and, um, you talk about its MAOI properties, um, which could cause, you know, more serious or grave, um, interactions between other medications. So could you talk a little bit about this? Yeah. Well, so, but, so basically ayahuasca is, you know, well, I don't know. This is a very like Western way of like defining ayahuasca, right? But it's like a, an orally bioavailable form of DMT. Mm -hmm. So the psychedelic in ayahuasca is DMT or N-N-dimethyltryptamine, which is a psychedelic that persons would usually use via an inhalation or vaporized route of administration. Because if you just take it by mouth, then the monamine oxidase, an enzyme, a metabolic enzyme in your small intestine and liver will just completely metabolize it before it reaches the brain. So if you just eat DMT, nothing happens. It's not psychoactive unless you combine it with a drug that also inhibits monoamine oxidase, right? So the ayahuasca vine has harmala alkaloids that are monoamine oxidase inhibitors in it. And the, you know, the short term in science is MAOIs. And MAOIs are kind of notorious for drug interactions with other substances that can boost serotonin. So that would be those SSRI or SNRI types of medications, as well as other psychedelics like MDMA that release serotonin, right? So MAOIs and those types of medications are are quite dangerous. You really can get serious serotonin toxicities um, with them. And, you know, really anything that blocks the reuptake or releases neurotransmitters. So that actually includes some other uh, classes of medications, things like the, the, the stimulants, the amphetamines uh, would be included in that. And that sort of extends to some of the cough and cold uh, medications, things like pseudoephedrine, uh, dextromethorphan, chlorpheniramine. These are like over-the-counter things that you might find in like a cough and cold kind of section that would also have some pretty serious drug interactions with, with MAOIs. So oh, wow. ayahuasca is kind of a different beast in that it really does have, you know, not necessarily lack of efficacy, 
drug-drug uh, interaction considerations, but there's more drug-drug interactions possible, probably, and the nature of the drug interactions leans to more towards like physical adverse effects in combination. So mm-hmm. with ayahuasca, you really do probably have to be a lot more careful. And, you know, that kind of conversation earlier of like, well, maybe you could just push the dose of psilocybin to, to overcome the SSRI resistance would be a horrible strategy with ayahuasca. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe even potentially result in something life-threatening or, or even mortality. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, ayahuasca is a, a wonderful psychedelic and really very somatic, right? There's more uh, physical clearing, it seems like, with ayahuasca. There's more vomiting. There's more diarrhea. There's more th- what kind of more traditional or shamanic um, philosophies would look at as like, like physical purging for, for the, the healing. Um, but it does carry more risks of drug interactions, particularly with psychiatric medications, with some of the other sort of cough and cold things too. Mm-hmm. So I know a lot of ayahuasca ceremonies recommend that people uh, taper off of any sort of antidepressants or psychiatric medications at least like six to eight weeks prior. Yeah. Do you think? Do you think that's sufficient? And is that based in, as far as you know, scientific research, or is that just kind of? Um... Well, for most antidepressants, like if I look at like a guideline for prescribing a major depression mm-hmm. they basically say that if you're taking an antidepressant then you're going to start a monoamine oxidase inhibitor for somebody then it the antidepressant should be tapered discontinued or washed out for two weeks unless okay. it's prozac then it's very long acting and then six weeks right so for like the truly contraindicated antidepressants according to you know whatever prescribing guidelines in psychiatry, if you're going to extrapolate those recommendations to a situation around ayahuasca, then it would be about two weeks for the antidepressants or six weeks from Prozac. Two weeks after you stop an antidepressant though, maybe you're in the peak of withdrawal at that time. Maybe you don't feel so stable. All right. So, so it's like there, there might be benefit to waiting that four to six weeks to let mm-hmm. some of the, the withdrawal pass a little bit more. or Maybe serotonergic psychedelics have some type of resetting effect to the serotonergic nervous system. Then it helps a person get through withdrawal. These are the kind of big question marks that are out there that no one really has any kind of answers to. And I've met some people that will argue one and some people that argue the other. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's more of a a choice than like a okay, you know, once you've once you've waited two weeks, you're a candidate to use ayahuasca. And, you know, pick a time where you don't have to feel like a million dollars. But I, I tend to think if you're you're in a really severe level of withdrawal, that is probably not a good idea to use a psychedelic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's solid advice. So this is kind of a more of a philosophical question, I guess. But when you when you counsel patients, um, especially do you counsel patients after kind of after they have had psychedelic experiences or is it more? I mean, I do, I do consulting. So I meet people in all sorts of positions and places, Mm -hmm. you know, some of it is, um, I tried something with my psychiatric med and it fizzled. What Mm -hmm. went wrong? What do I do now? Some of it's like I tapered off really rapidly and used a psychedelic and now I'm not in a good place. And it's like harm reduction. A lot of it is more upstream where it's like a facilitator or the person kind of getting an intake form and there's more medications on there than they're comfortable with. So they want like another set of eyes and like a consult just to walk through sort of what are these medications and the compatibility. And 
who is the person and what are their goals with this medication even? Because a lot of medications, it's sort of a gray area where it's like, well, that's not a no-go drug-drug interaction type of thing, right? In some ways, everything affects everything else. We're talking about psychedelics and set and setting. So it's kind of like, all right, there is no real drug interaction here that would require you to stop. But -hmm. you're telling me I've been on this drug and I'm not sure what it's doing except for the side effect that I get. And my goals are to not be on this drug anymore. Mm -hmm. Okay, Mm -hmm. well, I can tell you that there's no drug interaction. So just keep going. But it seems like you're telling me that you want to use your sessions with psychedelic therapy as kind of stepping stones to be deprescribing some of the medications you're taking and dealing with some of the issues that might come up from stopping those things. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so a lot of it is like, not necessarily that, okay, this medication, this psychedelic do this. It's Mm -hmm. more like, okay, well, you know, these are the doses. What's your history with this medication? Do you like it? Is it doing anything for you? What do you want to do with it? Well, why are you taking psychedelics? Is it more of a spiritual exploration? You just want to have this experience because you read about it? Or, you know, have you been following the trials and you're set up with a psychedelic therapist to do a series of three sessions over four to six months and you, you know, want to tackle stuff that you know has been hiding in your closet for the last two decades? Mm-hmm. You know, different persons, different intentions, different places. So a lot of it is just trying to, yeah, take whatever whole field science is out there and just kind of put it together into whatever individualized art form that medicine is, you know? Mm. So I'm wondering, let's say for instance, I'm a person struggling with depression and I have a psychedelic experience, a really powerful one where I, you know, have a mystical experience. I connect with God. I I feel meaning and connection to other people, which I think is very common for a lot of people who use psychedelics. Has anything in my brain changed? Like, have my neurotransmitters changed? Like, uh, do I have, I, I mean, of course, or is it, or is this kind of more of a spiritual thing that we can't explain? That's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, something in the brain has changed, right? But what has changed? And, mm-hmm. you know, what's the kind of, like, for example, now they're trying to engineer psychedelics that don't produce a psychedelic effect. And it's like, right. It's like, Okay, well, so so it's not a psychedelic, right? Obviously, but it's a psychoplastogen. And that's sort of like that I'm excited about this in in that, you know, taxonomically, right? You have sort of the first they were psychotomimetic, which meant like, okay, who cares what the subject's experiencing to an observer? It looks like they're in psychosis. Mm -hmm. Then it was hallucinogen, which is like, okay, it's a subjective perspective, but it's like very narrow in that. Oh, the only thing a psychedelic does is make you see stuff and hallucinate. It's right. like, well, come on, there's a lot more to it than that. Probably things like mind manifesting, like psychedelic, are actually the best sort of umbrella terms, in my opinion. But people have like very specific, like entheogen and pathogen and actogen, right? So all of these terms, hallucinogen, psychedelic, empathy, and actogen, whatever else I just said, they're all about the subjective perspective of the person and what they're experiencing. Whereas now in sort of uh, psychedelic science, they have this term psychoplastogen, basically meaning like a substance or drug that's able to upregulate neurotrophic factors in a way that makes the brain more plastic or neuroplastic, right? So it increases or enhances the brain's ability to adapt, to unlearn, to relearn, 
like these mm-hmm. kinds of things, right? So it's sort of like, it's unclear. It's like someone has a big spiritual mystical experience and they're doing so much better. You know, are they doing better because of that subjective experience of God that they had? Are they doing better because there was like a big anti-inflammatory and sort of like neurogenesis, like neuroplastic event that occurred for them that has like inherently changed their brain structure? You know, are we just kind of like chipping at the hard question here and, you know, drawing a distinction between mind and brain that may or may not like really exist? Mm. Um, (laughs) uh, So so, it's sort of unclear. It's like, why is a person getting better? Through the research at Johns Hopkins, the mystical experience of that big spiritual experience really is associated with improved functioning, psychosocial functioning, more like longer terms, like better outcomes. Um, Yet in the psychedelic community, it's very widely believed that, you know, difficult or challenging experiences can have some of the deepest nuggets of gold for the person, which would sort of be contrary to the idea that it's the spiritual experience where the healing is, right? It would be sort of like, it's the experience <laughs> and and what you do with it that, that the healing is. And mm, it's yeah, a bit I, of both, to be honest, right? Because it's like, well, I don't know. You don't want to tell people like, hey, eat some mushrooms and lightning will strike you and you will just wake up better, right? Mm-hmm. Like It's sort of like, oh, man, that doesn't seem like such a realistic narrative. Like the narrative of it's going to take a couple, maybe even three or four like psychedelic sessions spaced a month apart. And it's really going to be dependent upon not only what you experience, but what do you do with those experiences between them? Like, like how do you actualize the lessons that you've learned in this experience to actually improve your life? I mean, this is the concept of psychedelic therapy or psychedelic integration therapy. Right? And that seems probably for the majority of people, it's like, that's how the healing process really does like unfold. But there's plenty of stories out there about the, I don't know, I was an alcoholic, I was drinking whiskey, it was a dark and stormy night for some reason, I just got the impulse to instead have that handful of mushrooms that's been in my freezer for a year instead of the whiskey, and then I had this crazy experience, and I just understood that I could never drink again, and I didn't, mm-hmm. right? And so, like, those stories aren't that uncommon, Right? The sort of like hit by lightning, mystical experience, transcendence. I'm a different person now. Like those stories are out there and they're not that uncommon, but it doesn't really seem like a great narrative for telling people like this is how psychedelics heal. Because I think probably the majority of the time it's they they point the direction that you should go in, but it's up to you to walk that path still. Right. No, I think that's very, very true because there are definitely people who have done a hundred ayahuasca ceremonies, but haven't done the integration work and are still caught in the same patterns and addictions. But, but I also think for me, and and it's interesting, you brought up the, you you know, like the taking the magic out of the magic mushrooms, like, but I think it's not so wild when we look at um, organizations like Alcoholics Anonymous or something. I think yeah. one of the major reasons why that's been successful is because they incorporate a higher power. People have to surrender. People have to surrender their their ego and their control. And that's if that's not what psychedelics do for us, you know what what else do they do? Right. So, right. so I don't think. Yeah. So to me, it's just it's. I don't know. I don't feel like it's that much of a stretch to say that it is the mystical experience. Oh, it's it's, a, it's not that much of a stretch at all. 
Mm -hmm. right? It's not that much stretch of it all. I just think as far as like, you just don't want that to be the headline in the New York Times, you know, right. just sort of like eat the mushroom, wake up better. Yes. Because it's, it again, it, it happens a good percentage of people, but it's probably not the most common outcome of a psychedelic sort of experience. And so, yeah, it's like, it's real. I believe it. Like this happens mm -hmm. to people, but for the general population that's just discovering psychedelics after five decades of prohibition, I sort of prefer the narrative of it's going to take a few times. you got to like learn about this kind of thing. You're going to have to like work with it. You're going to need to make some lifestyle changes, mm -hmm. right? Like I think that narrative is a lot safer for the general public as far as like getting their expectations sort of on par with what it is. Mm -hmm. um, and if they get a better outcome than that more immediately, they're just going to be happy, right? Versus the other way around where they're expecting that miracle outcome immediately. And then it turns out that it's just a lot of hard work. Then they're going to feel like, what? Like I was, you know, told that it's like, I call it the mystical bullet, not the magic. Yes, of course. No, I, I, I completely agree with that. Yeah, too, yeah. Because, <laughs> because it's almost like if you're still approaching psychedelic medicine from that same mindset of I will take this pill and I will be better. It's not going to work. Like it really require it really requires kind of that, that effort and that intention and, and really wanting to look at you know, whether it's certain shadow parts or certain wounds or, or looking at the root causes of things. Yeah. And yeah, not, not everyone's, yeah. not everyone's ready to do that. So, so I think it is important. Yeah. And, and also sometimes in certain cases as well, I think the titration is really important as well. You don't want to necessarily yeah. give someone who's never tried, who's never like smoked weed, like a huge hit of mushrooms. That's not gonna, that might be really overwhelming. And yeah. I think there's also something to be said about like where the person is in their own like cycle of change. Like you know, kind of kind of like Ram Dass, like you can't rip the skin off of a snake before it's ready to like mold. Like it, it mm -hmm. just kind of has to be there. Right. And so the idea that like, well, psilocybin's anti-addictive. True. It's anti-addictive in a petri dish, it's anti-addictive in rodents. There's experimental evidence that's anti-addictive in humans now. Right. But those trials where they have psilocybin to quit smoking, psilocybin for alcohol use disorder, they're probably picking persons that are really highly motivated to give it a good go, like give it a good attempt. And anyone that's been to the music festival knows that there's plenty of hippies that are drinking beers and smoking cigarettes and eating mushrooms. And, you know, it's not like they ate the mushroom at the festival, then all of a sudden their desire to do those things just evaporates. Mm. Right. So it really does, I think, argue that there's something to be said about like a person's like will and like motivation to shift and change where they need to be bringing some of that to the table at baseline probably too. And, you know, maybe not a hundred percent. Cause I think one thing psychedelics can do is resolve ambivalence too. Cause I think a lot of people are in this place of like, I really should clean up my diet, but it's so hard. I really mm -hmm. should quit smoking cigarettes, but God, it relaxes me. You know, they're kind of in this place where they can see the negatives and real no you know, in their heart of hearts, they probably should address it, but then there's still some upside to them or some benefit that makes the, the attachment hard to break. And I think that psychedelics oftentimes are great at just like relax a different way. You're right. Yeah. You know, like they, yeah, they, they can be helpful in that, in getting a person to the place where they truly are ready to change. If they're sort of in that ambivalent place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I also wanted to ask you about your yeah. paper about a man who had persistent 
tinnitus after inhaling yeah. DMT. And it sounded like there was this, this case study, but there was also a lot of reports kind of in the underground scene about, um, you know, potentially developing tinnitus after the use of DMT. So could you talk a little about this and, and the risks associated here? Yeah. So, so this case report, it, it came to me through the consulting service and it was a person that was like, Hey, I, you know, inhaled some DMT and I think I got tinnitus or, or tinnitus as a result. And I was like, okay. And he'd been to his primary care doctor who was like, yeah, it sounds like tinnitus. And then he went to an audiologist who was like, yeah, that's tinnitus. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's sort of like, okay, he's gone and got this kind of like worked out and like checked up. And it seems like the diagnosis is like what, what it, what it is. Right. And, and I'd never heard of this before. Like I'd never heard like, okay, you're, you know, high pitch ringing in the ears after use of DMT. And so you go to medical literature and look for it and crickets, like there's nothing about that. But as soon as I go to, I don't know, Arrowhead Blue Light Forum, DMT Nexus, some of the sort of underground sites that uh, talk more about a person's experiences, all of a sudden there are these threads about DMT gave me tinnitus. Uh, so I thought, well, geez, the medical community really should know about this because it seems like it's an adverse effect of DMT that people report fairly uh, frequently. And we wrote the case report, we published it, and probably, you know, it's been over a year since we did it. And especially in the first six months or so, I got another half dozen emails from different uh, from different persons that were like, I saw your paper and me too. Like I got tinnitus wow. from DMT, which made me think that it's sort of like, okay, like this, you know, it's impossible to estimate the prevalence of these types of things or like the rate that they occur at you know, from case reports and underground forums and things like that. But it kind of, I don't know, I think to me, it was a, it was a lesson in the underground probably knows more about these substances than the medical community right now. The medical community is going to be probably prescribing and counseling people about these things relatively soon. We need to like bring these sort of like underground adverse effects that have been occurring like up to the light so that prescribers and the general community can learn about them uh, too. Uh, what else do I want to say about that? I'll say that it almost feels like there's this very sort of um, like hallucinogen persisting perceptual disorder that's defined in the DSM and was kind of originally a kind of like flashback disorder associated with LSD. And there's a few different types. There's like a visual snow type. There's more like a, a kind of like a, like a, like a, like a, like a sudden onset, like acute flashback type of uh, uh, experience. But it made me wonder, it's sort of like, okay, that's like visual effects, right? Like we're talking about which, I don't know, vision, that's plenty neurological. So it made me think like, okay, like hearing, like, like, is this like a form of like HPPD in some way? Like there's been some sort of, you think about psychoplastogens, neuroplastogens. So they're inherently making a person more moldable. The idea with psychedelic therapies, we're molding them towards a beneficial outcome as far as their mental health. But do they have the ability to just kind of change the neurologic, uh, uh, disposition of a person so that they could potentially have something like, like tinnitus. I'm not really sure what the answer is. You know, I had a few people that were kind of like, 
no, Mr. Scientist, you got it wrong. It's not tinnitus. It's like, I feel this throughout my entire body. Like I get these like wow. waves of energy and things like that. And I was like, well, you know, that, that that's you. The person that I was talking with didn't report any of those things. So I just wrote what they r- reported, right? Mm-hmm. Other people seem like- Is it a constant ringing or is it more of a flashback where every once in a while- will uh, so, this, so this person, it was a constant ringing. It was a constant ringing in the ears. It seemed to be made worse when he was close to electronic devices, which makes you wonder like, okay, is he like really, is he really, you know, is it like, is it tinnitus or is it like superhuman hearing? And all of a sudden his like hearing range is expanded to hear these probably like high pitched electronic noises that a lot of things may, may be making all around us all the time. Um, But, but, but it was interesting for him in that, he had been dabbling in LSD microdosing for probably like six or nine months ahead of the sort of DMT that gave him tinnitus. And he sort of reported that, you know, for the first couple months of microdosing, it was going pretty good. It made me feel better. And then something switched with the microdosing that sort of like it kind of just maybe agitated and anxious when I was microdosing. So I kind of gave up the microdosing and started to use some like inhaled DMT and he was kind of talking about how the time that he actually used it that gave him tinnitus, it was like a terrifying sort of experience where he used DMT the day previously and it had been pretty good. It was almost like um, like spontaneously he decided to like try it again the next day without much sort of like thought ahead of time. And it just sounds like he had like a very like dysphoric, anxiety ridden, sort of like rushed kind of uh, experience. And then... It was probably about 12 hours later, the next morning, the ringing started. And then throughout the next day, it got louder and louder and louder. So it wasn't really like an immediate effect either. It wasn't really like, oh, I inhaled DMT and then the ringing was there. It was more like I inhaled DMT. I had this weird, not great experience. And then it started the next day. And after he, you know, he had the uh, tinnitus from DMT. And the the ringing in the ears faded over time, over a couple of months. He tried a microdose of psilocybin, and then the ringing got loud again, and it stayed loud for another couple of weeks, and then it started diminishing again. So, so it seemed like it was it was almost like reproducible from adding another psychedelic. And I don't know, like you can speculate all the kind of things you want there about whether. I don't know, set and setting or lack of preparation or kind of like the DIY, like home microdose dabbling, like played a role in the development of that. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Like, I, I don't know what the answer is or not, but, you know, there were certainly sort of some elements of the case that were kind of like, well, it's probably less than ideal psychedelic use. Yes. And just to clarify, all of these cases that you found out about were from inhaled DMT and not ayahuasca not ayahuasca no right. Mo- like most of the ones that reported to me were inhaled dmt i did get one or two persons said they got it from five meo dmt which made okay. me kind of like hmm, okay like maybe more yeah. than one type of inhaled dmt mm-hmm. i mean it sounds like it sounds like it could be a lot of different factors so i, I don't even want to yeah. speculate but i do think there right. there are always risks of any time that we're extrapolating molecules from different plants we don't know. We don't know what's going to happen. And we don't know what the effects are. So I think there's always a risk associated with that. Yeah. 
Um, okay, so to to wrap up here, I'm wondering if there's anything if there's anything that we missed in terms of risks or adverse effects that you think it's really important for listeners to know about when it comes to psychedelic use. Oh well, <laughs> there's probably a lot of stuff, right? I I think I will say that 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 you know through my website, I essentially do three things, and the third thing is a hybrid of one and two. So I have psychopharmacology consulting. Right. I have educational courses in psychedelic pharmacology. I also have one like antidepressant tapering. Then I have a member program where those two things are merged together. So you get all of the courses, webinars, and drug interaction and information guides I've ever kind of written and put together. It's sort of like a library. Um, you can ask questions through email-based Q&A. I respond either through email or also do signal voice messages. Um, and then you can have discounted rates on consulting. So if you're like an individual that maybe you're interested in using psychedelics, but you know, you may need to taper a medication or two, and you would like some sort of like ongoing support medication coaching around tapering and or beginning to use psychedelics member programs is, is good for you. If you're a facilitator provider, um, you know, a lot of them will use the email Q and a to submit an intake form and get a second set of eyes in the screening process around medications or illnesses people are having. And sometimes we sort it out through email Q and a, and then sometimes it seems that, you know, maybe it depends on the person's goal. So we want to do a consultation with them and the member program allows people to do consult di- at discounted rates. And if you're a provider, I let you extend those discounted rates to your clientele. So it's so it's so it's supposed to sort of cover your your practice. So really, I say is like there's probably many many other you know important pieces of information and drug interactions and things that I could talk about. But essentially, that's why I have like the programs and things I have together so that you know there's resources to cover major classes of psychiatric medications and learn about them on your own time. And if you really have sort of like an individual question or perhaps a medication that's not covered in the resources, there's a mechanism to to get information about that. Okay, great. And I'll link to I'll link to your site in the show notes so listeners will have that as as a resource. Um, and then my final question is, what are you most excited to learn about um, when it comes to psychedelics moving forward? Like, what is that that the biggest question in your mind right now? Wow, biggest question on my mind. Oh, there's a lot. I mean, I, I, I mean, it might be sort of like controversial type of stuff, but it's like I really want that. Like so far, right? And I think this would do a lot as far as like understanding what's what in all of this, right? Is that so far the only thing that they're compared is psychedelic to placebo or psychedelic to active control. And what they've kept the same is the amount of therapeutic support people get. But I'm really interested in, again, like sort of trying to parse out what part of this is drug, what part of this is therapy. So it's like, I would really like them to do a trial where it's kind of like, okay, there's one group that gets minimal therapeutic support, like just kind of tripsier style, check in maybe between still okay, no problems. Okay. Like no adverse effects. Sure. Versus the group that gets the full sort of like therapy. Like that's, that's what, what I would like. Cause I think it would, it would really help us understand like how much support is truly necessary to keep people safe and get the benefits. Right. Cause if it turns out that you only need one or two 90 minute therapy sessions before and between instead of three or four, 
that's going to reduce the cost of the intervention quite a bit. And that's going to make it available to a lot more people potentially. So we're trying to sort of find the sweet spot between enough therapeutic support that people really feel held and can go through their process and make the kind of like strides in healing that they're after with sort of there's so much handholding that we've sort of used up all of our resources in a very limited number of people when, you know, the idea is to make it as available as possible in the safest and most beneficial way possible. Like, I'm a pharmacist, right? Not a therapist. So I'm drug centric. <laughs> so I tend to think drugs are doing the heavy lifting in a, in a lot of things where a lot of people are in the therapy side thinking that it's like, I've heard it's 98% integration. It's like, well, it's definitely not 0%, but I don't know if it's 98%, right? I think that's probably more in that 50-50 zone. And yeah, there's, there's what you're bringing to the table, the set and setting, everything else. And then, you know, I think we just have to recognize that these substances have inherent neurochemical benefits to them. Mm -hmm. You can see it extremely clearly with ketamine. You know, okay. the ketamine trials, they're not ketamine-assisted therapy trials. All the people with major depression or a lot of them got better still, right? Mm -hmm. So there's there's just a raw beneficial effect that a psychedelic will have, but then there's more that you can do with it with for, from there. And I think that's the sort of therapy piece, but how much of each and what's necessary to keep people safe versus like sort of fully realize the, the therapy. I think these are big questions that the healthcare system has as far as what should we pay for, how often, things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's such an interesting question. I want to know the answer to that too as well, because then of course it's the bias you bring into it as well of what what is what and how do you how do you categorize it. But well thank you so much. I, I want to be respectful of your time. So thank you so much for uh, yeah sharing all of your wisdom and, and your knowledge with us. And I can't wait to share this with listeners. Oh, thank you so much. It's been wonderful talking with you and being on the podcast. Thank you so much for listening to Psychedelic Science for the People. If you enjoyed this episode, I would be so grateful if you would leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or rate us on Spotify. This podcast is supported by the Agricultural Genomics Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to educating the public about cannabis and other medicinal plants. If you would like to learn more about this cause or make a donation, please visit agriculturalgenomics.org.